when we're going all over the scripture. I've, I've been in services before where I didn't have the Bible, only electronic version, and it's a lot harder to find those places when you got to tap on it and search and whatnot. So, so we need to get familiar with our, our hard copy Bible. So make sure you bring your Bible with you um, uh, to church. All right, here's the question. Is Jesus truly God? And the title there is Jesus God Revealed. Last week we explored, and it was really it was really interesting to me, and I think to some others based on our conversation Wednesday night, about the fact that Jesus was truly human, and that he accepted all of the limitations that you have. In other words, Jesus was just like you. He wasn't just partially human and partially God. It's not about amounts, it's about nature. He was truly a human being. He's also truly God. And, and this, it's important. He had to be human. And one of the coolest things that came out last week, he had to be a human being in order to die. Because God can't die, but we can. So, so we want to, and he understands. As a result, he gets us. That was nothing that came out. Jesus Christ gets us. He understands our pain. He understands our suffering. He understands what it is to walk on this fallen world and encounter fallen people. He understands our hurts. He understands our joys. He understands holidays. He understands weddings. And he was a blast at funerals. <laughs> as you, as we, we see the resurrection of Lazarus and several others in the scripture. But today we're going to talk about, is Jesus truly God? And, can, and, and why does that even matter? Why does Jesus have to be God? Let me open with a quote by a fellow named John Chrysostom. He was an early church father. Um, you can see up there on the screen, he was born around 349 and died around 407. Here's what, here's what Chrysostom said to this effect. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon hath shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. As in much, in as much as he was held captive of it, he hath annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He angered it when it tasted his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hell, said he, was angered when it encountered thee. It was angered, for it was abolished. It was angered, for it was mocked. It was angered, for it was slain. It was angered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and beheld God face to face. It took earth and it encountered heaven. It took that which was visible and fell upon the invisible. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen and thou art overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigneth. What a powerful thing. I love that, it, that the grave received a man of flesh, and yet it beheld the face of God. Um, and, and again, Chrysostom had a, had a really powerful understanding of, uh, of this reality and this truth. So I want to just walk through a few things here, uh, kind of by way of introduction, and then we're going to really get to the main question after we've looked at some scriptures. 
I could spend probably a three-month-long series of Sundays just on the deity of Christ. Uh, we're not going to do that today, but I am going to give you some, some things to think about and to ponder when it comes to, was Jesus truly God? And here's the first one. The first thing that we have to, we have to recognize that Scripture clearly says is that he created and he sustains the universe. Think about this. Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, he created and sustains the entire universe. I think that's up there on the screen. We could get there. Pardon? Okay, and so here we go. Here's what the scripture says. John 1.1, 1, 1. you know this one. In the beginning was the word, word and the word was with God. Now listen to this. And the word what? was God. Now there are some groups out there uh, that will tell you that Jehovah's Witnesses being one, they, in their New World Translation, they translate that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's not what it says. And that, that article is not in the, in the uh, Greek translations of the Word of God. That is an absolute addition. Jesus wasn't a God, he was the God. In the beginning was the Word, that's Christ, the Logos. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He cre and then it goes on to say, uh, he created all things. Look at this verse in Colossians. Um, it comes up on the screen here. It's Colossians 1 and verse 16. For, for by him, and this, is, this whole context of Colossians 1 is all speaking of Jesus. For by him, how many things were created, church? All things were created. Where? In heaven and where else? And on earth. What kind of things? Both visible and what? Invisible. That which you can see and that which you cannot see. What are some things that you can't see that Christ created? I was thinking the same thing, Willie. Air. How many of you are thankful for air this morning? Yeah, you better believe you are. You can't see it, but he made it. What else did he create that you cannot see? Atoms. What else? Wind. Love. And he created our spirit and angels who are spirit beings. So again, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, and then verse 17, come up on the screen. It says, I'm waiting for Sam up there. I've got it right here, actually. And he, wait a minute, all things were created. Check this out. What's that next word? Through him. In other words, he was the agent of creation. But then as he created, it was created what? For him. So creation was through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And then look at this. And where? In him. In the creator, redeemer. How many things hold together? And you notice it doesn't say held together. It says what? That's present tense. He is currently holding creation together. So we see that Jesus, the deity of Christ, is exemplified in the fact that he created and sustained the universe. Here's the second one. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed it himself. In John 5, 58, um, Jesus is having one of those discussions with the religious leaders. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, they're saying, well, you think you're better than Abraham? You know, Abraham's our father, and, and you're, you think you're better than him? And uh, I think Jesus just had enough that day. And so he answers them really plainly, which was unusual. He Normally he didn't, but he does this time. And look what he says in John 15, 58. Jesus said unto them, 
truly, truly. Now, you and I read truly, truly, and we think, yeah, okay, so whatever. No, 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 you've got to understand. In, in the language of the day, to, to use this introductory, intensifying remark is saying, what I'm about to say is absolute fact, and you can take it to the bank, you need to listen to it. So he gets their attention by, by using this intensifier at the beginning of his next statement. So truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? Now he doesn't say was. He says, I am. Now you, now you got to know those Jewish religious leaders, there's something significant about this I am. <laughs> Very much so. Because when Moses said, I mean, I can't go telling people this stuff, they're going to kill me. Who do, I, who, what, who do I tell them sent me? And he said, you tell them that I am that I am has sent you. That was Jehovah God. And, and let me tell you what, the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying, so much so that they were, they were getting ready to throw him off a cliff. They were going to kill him because he committed, in their eyes, blasphemy because he equated himself with Jehovah. Jesus says that himself. He's called God by other people. Here's another one. He's called God by others. Remember Thomas? What do we call him? Well, Thomas has a nickname. Yeah, his actual nickname in the group, in the club, the disciples club, was the twin, Didymus, the twin. But he lost that nickname because of his actions after the resurrection. You know, they were all there. Jesus shows up. I don't know where Thomas was. He was at Chick-fil-A. I don't know what he was doing. But he was not there. Um, and so, they, so he comes back, right? And it was a little Chick-fil-A bag, and he says, hey, guys, what's going on? I said, you ain't going to believe this, Thomas. Jesus showed up here. He really is alive. And you remember, what did Thomas say? I ain't am, I am buying it. And then he makes this bold statement. He says, the only way I'm going to believe that he's alive again and is truly living is if I put my, f not just see it. Seeing is not believing for Thomas. He's from Missouri, the show me state. He says, if I put my fingers in, a, in, the, in the nail marks and I put my hand in his side, it's kind of rough, right? So then, of course, so he gets called Doubting Thomas. So then Jesus, boy, God's timing is, is almost humorous. So they're all together in the room. He just makes this bold statement. And then the Bible says Jesus is right there. All of a sudden, there's Jesus in the midst of them. You ever been caught like that before? <laughs> just like red-handed? Um, so there's, there's Jesus right there, right in the midst of them. Sam, that should be on the screen, that next thing. You've got to stay with me. There's a lot of screens today. The others said he was, he was God. Um, so Jesus is standing there right in front of them. And he said, hey, Thomas, how you doing? Hey, come on over here. Put your fingers in my hands and put your hand in my side and be not faithless, but believe. And Thomas has an answer, and you're going to see it here. It's in, it's in uh, John 20, verse 28 on the screen. And it says this, Thomas answered him. Notice what Thomas calls him. My Lord and what? My God. My Lord and my God. Now I'm here to tell you, if Jesus wasn't God, would he not have corrected Thomas's given title to, to himself? He would have, because he is righteous. Here's another one on the screen, Titus 2, thir uh, verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Again, Apostle Paul wrote a good chunk of the, of the epistles. 
in the New Testament. And here's what Paul says to them. He said, waiting for our blessed hope, uh, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. He's not only our Savior, he's our what, church? God. Our God and Savior. So, so Jesus claimed that for himself. Others called him God. So I want you to see here, this is not a stretch in Scripture. Um, on the next screen, you're going to see a picture of a guy named J. Oswald Sanders. And uh, Sanders has written some great books. This quote comes from his book, The Incomparable Christ, The Personal Work of Jesus Christ. Here's what Sanders says. Listen to this. If Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. Conversely, if he is God, those who say he was merely a good man or even the best of men are blasphemers. More seriously still, if he is not God, then he is a blasphemer in the fullest sense of the word. If he is not God, Sanders says, he is not even good. Ponder that. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Here's a couple more uh, things to, to consider. Here's, here's another one. He forgave sins, which only God can do. Right? He forgave sins. We, we see this in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. And uh, this is a story where the friends got their paralyzed friend together. Remember this? To bring him to Jesus, and there's no room. So what did they have to do? They then went through the roof. Um, and, and so this is the story. So imagine this guy's let down right in front of Jesus through the, through the tiled roof, which was removed. And uh, we pick it up there in Mark 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, what did he say to him? Son, you're what? Your sins are forgiven you. That's a funny way to heal somebody, isn't it? It's not the first time he did that. He did that on more than one occasion. Now check this out. Jesus always had his detractors listening. Next verse. And some of the scribes were sitting there. And they were reasoning in their hearts. What's that mean? They were thinking to themselves. Were they, were, they, were, they, were they saying what they were thinking? No, they're just listening and mulling this over. Here's what they're saying. Here's what they said. Next screen, please. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? And then here's, here's their question. Who can forgive sins but who, church? God alone. See, if Jesus is not God, then he's a blasphemer. And they were right. Now, where they were wrong is they refused to make the connection that maybe he, this guy really is the Messiah and maybe he truly is God in human flesh. So he forgave sins. Here's another one, and this one is really important. It kind of goes back a little bit to what I said about Thomas. Next one on the screen is this. He was worshipped, and I chose two verses to show you the book ends, but this also happened all throughout his ministry. He was worshipped from his birth to his resurrection, and here's the key part, and he what? He accepted that worship of people. Now listen to me. The big thing about Jesus, and we're going to unpack that here in just a few minutes, it's vital that he was sinless and, and broke no law of God. 
Because only then can he die for all the laws of God that you have broken. And so we see this as the historical record. Um, and to receive worship, for someone to bow down and worship you as a human being is the height of idolatry and blasphemy because you are putting yourself in the place of God. And for Jesus to receive this worship if he were not truly God would be blasphemous, causing others to stumble, and that would equal sin. Are you with me? You're tracking with me? I just want to connect those dots. So, so let's look at it right at his birth. We see it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. You can read it on the screen. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? And they fell down and what, church? Worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You should know this history by now. Who are we talking about? Who did this? The wise men, the magi, uh, that came uh, most probably from Iran, uh, which is where they were, uh, or Iraq, excuse me, uh, modern-day Iraq, which was Babylon. Um, and here's another one. Here's the end of his ministry, Matthew 28, 17. Jesus is up on the mountain. The disciples come to him. This is right before he ascends back to sit at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says this. They all gathered around him there at the top of this mountain and here's what the scripture says and when they saw him they what worshipped him but some did what doubted they even had their doubts at the end um, and when the Holy Spirit came those doubts were erased but you notice that these, these disciples came to Jesus and the Bible says they worshipped him and you notice there's not in verse 18 it doesn't say and Jesus rebuked them for worshiping him because only God is to be worshipped you don't see that why because Jesus is truly what church God there it is um, so all of this makes sense let me give you one more quote powerful quote by C.S. Lewis um, in his book entitled mere Christianity here's what Lewis says I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God. And I want to stop there. How many of you ever heard that before people say that? Yeah, especially in our, in our post-modern uh, society, people will say this. Yeah, Jesus was a good guy, did good things, but you know, I, I can't accept that he was truly God. Lewis goes on to say this. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. Boy, Lewis had a way to just lay it out there, didn't he? That's one of the, that's one of the reasons, and I, that's one of the reasons I love him and would encourage you to read um, read his writings, some of the best uh, writings in Christendom. All right, let me, now let me unpack this briefly. 
today. Uh, and this comes right out of our catechism, which is inside of your bulletin. You can see this. Why? Okay, so, so what is the deal with Jesus being truly God? Why? Why does the Redeemer have to be not just truly human, which we understood that from last week, but also truly God? Well, here's the first thought. His obedience was perfect and effective. The reason he had to be truly God is that his obedience was perfect and effective. And in order for, listen, follow this now. In order for his obedience to be perfect and effective, he had to be what? Truly God. Truly God and also truly human. We talked about that last week. A human got us into this problem, and it takes a human being to get us out. Adam broke the law. Jesus, as the second Adam, as he's called in Romans, comes and pays the penalty for the broken law for all who will believe. So, and, by, and that word perfect there really means complete. So you might want to jot these references down. I'm going to go through them a little bit fast. They won't be on the screen for the sake of time. But here's some thoughts under this. That, that Jesus had to be truly God so that his obedience would be perfect and effective. Romans 5.19, here's what it says. For as by one man's disobedience, that's the first Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, and who is that one man? Christ Jesus, many will be made righteous. So you have the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, disobedience and obedience, and the result being sinners versus righteous. Okay? So Jesus Christ's obedience is necessary if you and I are ever going to be called righteous by God himself one day. Here's another one, Philippians 2.8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and here's the word, and he became obedient unto death. And then it qualifies that, not just human death in a normal way, even death on a tree or on the cross. So Jesus had to obey death. He became obedient unto death. And again, um, he had to be truly God in order to do this. Hebrews 5.8, though he was a son, this verse blows me away, though he was a son, speaking specifically as a son of God here, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's crazy to me. So Jesus Christ, the son of God, truly human, truly, truly God, did you see what it said? It said he learned obedience. Now, did Jesus not know obedience before? No, that's not what that word learned means. It means he produced obedience. It's one thing to say, hey, I can handle that. It's another thing to walk through it and handle it. Jesus experienced all the temptations that you and I will experience. He's just like us, and yet he did not sin because he's truly God. He's just like God. Does that make sense? That is so good. Um, that should even make an Episcopal shout amen this morning. <laughs> I think y'all are sleeping or you're not understanding who Jesus really is, but I am doing my, I'm preaching better than you're responding this morning. I'm just going to tell you that this morning. Here's the next thing. His suffering, not only his obedience, his suffering was complete and effective only because he had to be truly God for that suffering to work and to be effective. And I'm going to explain that to you here at the end. Luke 24, 46, jot that down. And he said to them, Jesus says to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. 
so this is on the road to Emmaus. That nobody knows these guys that these disciples he's walking with, they have no idea A who he is, and B they have no understanding of why he had to die. So the Bible says Jesus started with the Old Testament and showed them that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And so he says right in there, hey, guys, how do you miss that? It's written in the Old Testament that it is necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. It's all in there, but you guys read right over it and you missed it. And by the way, let me do a little parenthesis here. Do you think if the Old Testament believers read over stuff and didn't get it, do you think that might be a temptation for us today? I'm just asking. There's a lot of stuff we read right over and don't get. Here's the next one, Acts 3.18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, here's what they are, that, that the Messiah would suffer and Christ has thus fulfilled it. Hey, the guys, the, the, the prophets all said the Messiah would suffer and Jesus suffered, therefore Jesus is that Messiah, that anointed one who is truly man and truly God. Acts 17.3, explaining and demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That's, that's, um, that is uh, Peter preaching here. So, so here's the thought. His suffering had to be complete. He had to complete the suffering and that suffering had to be effective to wipe away our sin. And the only way that can happen is if he's truly God. Why, Paul? Why is it that Jesus had to be God in order for his obedience and suffering to be complete? Good question. It's because of this third thing that will come up here. It says this. Jesus had to be God, truly God, don't miss this. In order to be able to have the ability to bear the righteous anger of God against sin. And yet overcome death. I don't think we even come remotely close to understanding the weight of that statement. And it only began to dawn on me this week. And I'm pondering it and I realize it's one of those things that is so glorious and so heavy and so amazing that my little mind, it, it's, God's crashing my hard drive over this thought. And here it is. Jesus had to be truly God because only God could bear the wrath of himself against sin. Any human being would crumble underneath the weight of it. He had to be truly God. Here are some scriptures. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you catch that long word? Propitiation? I guarantee none of you used that in a sentence this week. You didn't. Rolling Stones used to sing about it. Was it Rolling Stones? Or who's that, who's that guy with the big lips? That's Mick Jagger. My, is he in the Rolling Stones? I'm so, boy, am I dating myself badly. When they sang that song, I can't get no satisfaction. Satisfaction means propitiation. Only propitiation is a stronger and a more violent term. 
Propitiation is a term that means the, the complete and total satisfaction and exhaustion of the wrath of God. The only way that God can be satisfied with the reality of my sin is if his wrath that I've earned for every sin is completely exhausted. I'm going to come back to that, but I want you to understand that's what this word propitiation means. There's something glorious here in just a minute about this word. Here's another same word, Romans 3.25. You should be writing these down. Go check it out. Don't believe a word I say. You go home and read the scriptures and find out for yourself. Whom God, talking about Jesus, whom God set forth, here's the word, as a propitiation. How, how is he a satisfaction of the wrath of God? He says it right here, a propitiation by his blood. So somehow, somehow the blood of Christ satisfies the wrath of God against my sin. Keep that in your mind. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to, here it is, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's a whole unpacking of the Old Testament sacrificial system. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for his son, who is God's son? Jesus, from heaven, whom he, God, raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? Whose wrath is it? Against who? Us, human beings. Why is God, why is God wrathful towards me? Because I've sinned. And that is God's righteous stance towards sin. Listen, if God is going to be God and remain righteous, he has to be, have a stance of wrath against sin. He can't overlook it. He cannot let it go. Now, this begs a question that we should be asking right now. And it is simply this. Here's the question. I think that will... There you go, Sam. You're on it. Next screen. There you go. How long was Jesus on the cross? Think about that. What's that? You were right, Dale. You, you see me at the church, I'll give you a prize. Six hours on the cross. And that's, that's abundantly clear through the record of the Gospels. Hold up six fingers. Got it? You can count those, can't you? All right. Stay with me. Next question. How long is our punishment in the next life if we reject Christ's death in our place? Can you count that? Can you count six? Can you count eternal? All right. Next question. The real question is this. How in the world does six hours on a cross equal eternity in hell? Are you with me? I really want you to ponder this truth. It's a perplexing question. Jesus is on a cross a total of six hours. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy six hours. I'm just talking physically. Most of the time, they would keep those guys alive. Um, and they'd keep him alive for two to three days. On, it was a miserable way to die. 
Now we know that the Passover was coming, so they had to get those guys off the cross uh, at least an hour before sundown so that they could throw the bodies in the garbage dump, which is literally where they went, except for Christ, um, and, and, and go cleanse themselves before the sun fell because when the sun, when the sun goes down, it's Sabbath day, Passover day, and they got to be clean which means they got to go through this ritual cleaning before the next day because the day starts at sundown, not like us at midnight. So we know all of this. There's six hours on the cross, miserable time, but it is not about the physical. I am firmly convinced the physical suffering that Christ endured on that cross is simply a dim shadow of what he experienced spiritually. But here it is. Somebody tell me, six hours of the Son of God on the cross, God is willing to trade for your eternity in hell. Now, somebody, I'm not, I've never claimed to be a math guy. Not my first love. But even I know that there's a big difference between six hours and eternity. How can God trade six hours of punishment for an eternity in hell. What's that? Who's saying that? Tom, you're throwing your voice there. The only way this works, the only way this works is if Jesus is truly God. It is the fact that he is God truly God in every sense that allows him to go beyond into another realm that you and I can't even in the next life enter and that is to have this ability in six hours to suffer an eternity's worth of the wrath of God ponder that That's it. Good point, Tom. Yeah, it's not just one person's eternity. It's what? Everybody who's going to believe, right? It's, it's from the first ones to whoever's the last person to put their faith in Christ. It's millions upon millions of people times eternity in six hours. That tells me several things. Number one, only God could suffer that deeply that quickly. Number two, my sin and your sin is far worse than we understand. Dear God, help us to understand how, how horrible our sin is and how much it costs. I don't know. I think as a kid growing up in church, you know, I was a professional Christian, um, um, you know, even before I was saved, and I never, I never comprehended the weight of my sin how bad it really is and that Jesus could somehow in his divinity and his humanity his humanity so he could die his divinity so he could bear it in six hours God traded that for my eternity eternity why does it take eternity follow this one the wrath of God is so heavy and so hot That it never ceases to be outpoured on those who reject his son. And yet this same son absorbed all of it. 
That which takes me an eternity, never ending, it's, an, it's, a, it's a bottomless pit, that's where the word comes from, of the wrath of God, the Son of God could absorb in six hours. We cannot begin to touch the hem of the garment of how horrible our sin is and what it cost the Son of God, our Savior. And yet he was able to absorb it. And here's the glorious truth of this church. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God in six hours, which you and I can't do in eternity. Because he's God. But here's the beauty. Let's look at the backside of this horrible thought. How much wrath is left for you? How much is left? What did Jesus leave undone? Nothing. When he said, it is finished, it was. It was over. And I assert that only God could pull that off. And because he did, he was then raised from death. And that's our text verse today. You've been there a long time, but it's in Acts 2.24. And here's what it says. God, and that's speaking specifically of the Father, raised him, that's Christ. God raised Jesus up. Up from what? Death. Look what he said. Loosing the pains of death. I love this. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Everybody look here. Death couldn't keep its grip on Jesus. For two reasons. Number one. Because as God and as a man, he was truly innocent. And though a man can die and go into the afterworld, God cannot die and stay dead. And, and, and the word uh, pangs, the pangs of death, is literally the word for birth pangs. How many of you ladies remember when those came on? Yeah, isn't that a glorious thing? Poor Anna. Y'all pray for her. I think she's going to have that baby this week. But y'all know when those labor pains get for real, right? That's that's a God loosed God God loosed Jesus from the that pain of death. And that word loosed is like is, is the Hebrew word for in the Hebrew it's the word for a snare or a trap. Death could not keep him in its trap in its snare. Jesus had to be resurrected. The only reason he could be is because he was not just truly man, but he was truly God. Does that make any sense this morning? So I'm going to ask David to come, and uh, we're going we're gonna to sing a song of response. But as he does, I want to ask you something. I want to ask you something. Jesus, our Redeemer, is truly human so that he could die. And truly God, so that in perfection he could not stay dead. He must be obeyed in faith and in practice from the heart. And we must worship him, not only with our mouths, but with our whole life and our whole heart. 
And if you're here today, you might be like I was at the age of 15. Sitting underneath the preaching of a guy named Pastor Rick Schusler for the first time in my life, God opened my eyes to see my sin. I thought I was okay. I, I had said a prayer when I was a kid, and I thought, God and I are good. I marked that off my list. But man, when the, God opened my eyes that morning and I saw my sin, and I began to comprehend how much trouble I was in, I began to feel the heat from this wrath of God that was hanging just over the head of my soul. And it wasn't a fear of, he of hell so much as a realization of what I had done and I never got it before then. And that doesn't happen until the Holy Spirit begins to breathe life into you. And I remember at the age of 15 beginning to wilt underneath the weight of my sin. What have I done? Who have I done this against? And only then did I see my Savior. All of a sudden, the cross became beautiful to me. To see Jesus, my Savior, truly man and truly God, wrecked on that cross. absorbing every drop of the wrath of God that I had rightfully worked hard for. And to hear the Father look at me and say, welcome home. All he's got for this filthy sinner is a hug, a kiss, a robe, a ring, feet, uh, sandals for my feet, and a fatted calf that's not long for this world. He's got no judgment left because Jesus absorbed it all. And right there in my seat, before I ever walked down that aisle, God made me his own. It all came clear. If you're here today, you might be experiencing something similar. And I'm telling you what's happening is the Holy Spirit is breathing life into you right now. Just go with it. <laughs> and know that it's the beginning of a journey that's amazing. He said, preacher, what do I got to do? Well, that's the beauty of it. You don't do anything. He did it all. There's nothing left. What we do is we believe. We agree with God that Jesus six hours is enough for my sin debt. That he absorbed it all. As a result of that belief, the other side of that coin is something the Bible calls repentance. And that's just simply this. I turn away. I turn my back. I'm trying to save myself. I turn my back. I'm trying to make myself right with God. I turn my back on that sin. And I come to him on his terms. It's that simple. I want you to pray with me right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And then we're going to sing. Nobody's looking around, but I just have a question for you. Do you understand your sin? Do you understand that 
Jesus is the Savior who undoes, who absorbs the wrath of God. Maybe you're here today saying, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever understood this like this today. But I, I, I want to, between God and I right now, say, God, I can't fix my sin, but I believe what Paul's saying up there from your word that Jesus absorbed all the punishment for every one of my sins, past, present, and future. I believe it. And right now, I'm, I, I turn away from trying to fix myself. And I trust that you have this handled because you're God and I'm not. If you're out there this morning and that sounds like something that's going on right now in your heart and your head, I'd just like you to slip your hand up. If you want to just confess that Jesus Christ is your rescuer this morning and you're clinging to him for that. Amen. I see those hands. Amen. Praise the Lord. God, you are good and you are glorious and all glory is due to you. All the fame, all the songs, all of the, all of the wonderful acts of service, you're worth it all. I pray that right now those hands were raised in this church this morning, that in the portals of heaven the bells are ringing and the party's being thrown. I pray that as you are opening the eyes of people to their sin and then to their Savior, that God, you will find a perfect home in their heart and you will make their lives and remake their lives in such a way that you're comfortable living there. And we will rejoice with you in the glory that Christ our King garners from the lives of the people of this church. In Jesus' name, stand with me.